Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. We did Caro about this actually recently, and we've probably been doing this theme at church where we look, take one piece of scripture and look at it from multiple different interesting angles. And we realized we've probably got quite a few new faces here than when we started doing this. So it's probably time we do just a really brief explanation of why we're doing this again as well, just to try to explain that we're not heretics here. We're trying to, what we're trying to do is show us that there are, the scripture Bible is so, so rich. And like I was just saying before, if we only read scripture through our own perspectives, through our own understandings, the ways that we've been taught from people very similar to us, then scripture can be just a very two-dimensional thing. But if we read it from other perspectives, from other people groups, other cultures, other time periods, we can see how scripture actually comes alive and how it can mean so much more when looking at it from multiple perspectives. But just as a bit of a disclaimer, we're not saying that the way we read Scripture now is necessarily wrong. Some things might be worth challenging, but we're saying that, yeah, what, what we understand about Scripture, we still believe the, the truths, but there's also other truths for other people that we find in Scripture as well. And so as we look at Scripture, the, the analogy is it's like a multifaceted diamond and we look at it through one perspective and we see something and we turn that diamond and we see something else and we turn it again and we see something else. It's all still the same beautiful diamond, but looking at it through different perspectives, different lenses that brings on different life, which is absolutely fascinating. And so that's what we're trying to do here at Scripture, widen our horizons and our understanding on Scripture. And sometimes we get experts in those areas to come in sometimes like tonight (laughs) we get me who's done a little bit of research trying to get my head around and understand this and share with you what i understand about this as well and so tonight like i said we're doing jesus feeding the five thousand people and we're going to be looking at it from a political point of view and the politics around this passage largely revolve around food and the feeding and food economy and food supply and I realize there are some people here that are probably very, very well versed in this area, that, that have done a lot of study, have done a lot of research, and are very passionate about justice for food and food to feed every mouth around the world, not just those in the rich countries. Then there's other people that this might be a new concept for as well. I probably fall somewhere in the middle, but tonight I'm just going to be giving a bit of a, a general perspective about what this means and how it relates to what Jesus is doing here as he feeds the 5,000 people. So before we get all into that, let's read the actual scripture. This is actually one of the few stories that appears in every single one of the Gospels. And so we gather it must hold some kind of significance there. And so I'm going to be reading this from Mark 6, and this is verses 34 to 44. And it says, Jesus landed and saw a large crowd. And I love that Jesus landed. It sounded like he's Superman. He just landed and sees a large crowd. Jesus landed and he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. By the time, by this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy them something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, 
that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the, the disciples picked the basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. And so, like I was saying, this passage is about Jesus feeding people, feeding the hungry people. And there is significance in what he's doing. It's not just a whiz-bang miracle to show that he's the son of God. There is something significant and very political what Jesus is doing here. And so I've got a few statements I just want to be sharing with you just to kind of frame what I'm going to be talking about from various different people. Um, and so the first one is, it's about, yeah, food is political. And this is a quote from Yanita Blackwell. She was the first African-American woman who was the mayor of the US state of Mississippi. And she says that politics is not about voting once every four years. Politics is the air we breathe, the food we eat, the roads we walk on. In other words, politics enters into every part of our lives that we need to survive, providing we belong to some kind of community or society. Sure, we could get away from all this kind of stuff, away from the politics and live off the grid, be completely self-sufficient. But that, for many of us, that, that is not us. Food is political. Infrastructure is political basic essentials. It's all very political. And so we're not disconnected. We might not realize it, but it's never disconnected from us. Food supply, food economy, it's one of the basic requirements that a government has to deliver to its people, to ensure that its people are being fed. But it's also one of the ways that a government or those in power can actually control a population. Or if they are powerful enough to control other populations that aren't theirs control as well. And so food is an incredibly political thing. But here in Australia, in a developed country in the West, we might not really realise it that much, the, the struggle that some parts of the world might have with food economy, with food supply, because we here are lucky enough to have been born at the right place in a typically Western developed nation in the 21st century, at the right time. And so economists have dubbed this era that we're living in the, an age of abundance, or I found a less sexy way of saying it, the post-scarcity economy. We have never had access to the amount of food we have here ever before in the whole of human history. I can go down to Coles or Woolies or Leisure Coast Fruit Market and get produce, exotic produce from all over the world there at reasonably affordable prices. In short, the cost of living is going up, but it is still affordable and available to us. We've never had that before. Before this, it might have been like a smaller market, a farmer's market, the local market um, put on by the, by the village. It might have been, um, we might have had to be farmers and be self-sufficient and, su and supplying ourselves. And we would have been very, very reliant on the weather. If there was a drought, if there was flood, 
It means our crops wouldn't produce, our livestock might die. And come winter, we might starve. We might die. Now, if there is a flood or a drought, which we've had a lot of both in recent years, it's barely a blip on our radar. If there is a flood and it wipes out the apples in one part of the world, then we just buy them from another part of the world. And here we barely notice, we don't even know where our produce is coming from a lot of the times. It's very different to how it used to be. The only time we've probably experienced any kind of scarcity, any feeling of that scarcity is in recent years is really probably COVID and the whole lockdown thing. And you remember, you remember the toilet paper crisis that we went through and people are saying, oh, if you get a roll of paper towel and cut that in half, you have toilet paper and then sewage lines getting clogged up and all that horrible stuff. But I remember going to my local Coles and, and the fresh produce was going down, the fresh veggies were becoming a bit more scarce, uh, the meat went, was really um, scarce as well and just a really expensive like Wagyu steaks were left on the shelves, which was like $70 each and no one to buy those. Um, but that wasn't even really a produce problem. That was more of a supply chain problem. The food just wasn't getting to the shops quick enough. But just that small feeling of, oh, maybe I might go to the shops, it might not be enough. That might've entered into some of our minds, but that is just a glimpse of what we've had to deal with over the generations. If you even think back just a few generations ago, think back to your grandparents. I remember thinking about my grandparents and they came from a different generation from me, one that had to endure uh, depression, one that um, lived through the, the Second World War. And I remember they had some different outlooks on life than I did. They, they had some hoarding tendencies. And you might think, remember back and think maybe your grandparents were the same because they weren't, they, they grew up in a world where you know, their next meal wasn't always secure. They don't know if all of a sudden the supply chains will be cut and all of a sudden they won't have anything for who knows how long. And so they tend to hold on to things a lot longer than we do here today. And so even in recent times, we need to realize that we live in a very special place at a very special time where we don't really have to worry about this stuff so much. My next point is about food, how food control is power. And this is a quote from Henry Kissinger. He's the former US Secretary of State. And he says, who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents and who controls money can control the world. This is a very powerful and very political statement. It's about control. Food is essential and, and Henry is talking about power and he's talking about money and energy and things like that. But really it comes down to food. Without food, everything comes to a grinding halt. Our workforces come to a grinding halt. If I was stuck in a room with you for an unknown amount of time and I had a box of apples and you had a million dollars, how long would it take for you to be offering me a million dollars for my box of apples? How long would it take for you to be offering me a million dollars for just one of my apples? Food, who controls the food, controls the power. And that is something that a lot of our leaders, a lot of the powerful countries have realized for a very, very long time. I work as a chaplain in two high schools and in both high schools we have breakfast clubs. And when I started working in these high schools, I thought, oh, breakfast club's great. I remember breakfast club when I was at school. I never really went because the toast was always a bit cold and, and stale tasting. But we do breakfast club and I thought it was just a nice gesture. So you put a bit of food in the kid's tummy before they uh, go to class. But, being, well, but working in the wellbeing unit, I've come to realise how important it is 
for these kids to actually have breakfast. I have kids that come to me all the time with all sorts of problems. It might be issues at home. They're struggling with their classwork. They've just broken up with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, their, their friends are now teasing them or whatever it might be. And these kids can sometimes come to me and they're upset and they're inconsolable. And if they come to me like that, I've had to learn actually quite quickly. One of the first questions I need to ask them is, have you eaten anything today? And if they haven't eaten anything today, before we can even begin to enter into how are we going to fix these problems or address these issues that they're having, the first thing we do is, okay, I've got to get you some toast. I've got to get you a cheese sandwich. I've got to get you some cereal, something. Let's put something in your belly. Only once have they been fed can we then actually start having a conversation that actually is going to lead somewhere. Their emotions aren't so heightened. They're actually then able to think and reason and problem solve. Their cognitive reasoning is actually working like it should. Without food, everything comes to a grinding halt. And so that's just a, a small snapshot. Imagine that, but then on a global scale and what impact that would have. And that takes me to my next point about the global food supply. When I give food, sorry, and this is from the Brazilian Catholic Archbishop Helder Camara. He says, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. Oh, this, that's a powerful quote. There's so much good unpack there, but we're not going to do that tonight. We just don't have time. So imagine a whole country, a nation of people who haven't just skipped breakfast, but they've skipped multiple meals, maybe for multiple days. What kind of impact would that have on their ability to thrive as a nation? What kind of ability, what kind of impact would that have on their ability to progress and pull themselves out of the lower socioeconomic uh, levels that they're finding themselves in? What kind of impact would that have on them to be able to rise up against their oppressors and actually take control and power back? It would make it incredibly difficult. There are starving countries, there are starving people in the world. That is a sad truth. But it's not a produce issue. It's a supply issue. There are powers that hold on to food and prevent other countries or other people groups from having enough. Sure, they might give them enough to survive, but not enough to thrive. It's a way of control. The math says, the, the economics saying that, that the math says that the earth is able to produce enough food to feed every person in the world. In fact, if we even go fast forward to 2050, when they are expecting the 10th billionth person to be born on planet Earth, there will still be enough food to feed all 10 billion mouths. But there are going to be a lot of people starving then because there are those that have that keep the food away from those who have not. And so there is a great injustice here. Australia itself every year produces three times more food than it needs to feed its own population. And we're not even in the top 10 food producing countries. We're way down the line, like 14 or 15 down there somewhere. And so there's a lot of food being produced, but it's not getting to everyone that needs it. And so global starvation, it could be solved. It absolutely could be, but it won't be because food is leverage. The powerful, those in power can drip supply food to the poorer nations, the developing nations, just give them enough to keep, keep going on, to make them reliant upon them. They don't want them to completely die out because that's not a good look. But these developing nations, they provide a great 
cheap source of cheap labour that the richer countries can profit off. They keep giving them enough just to be able to keep going and make them reliant upon them so they don't stand up and rise up and say, no, we're going to take power back to ourselves because they're afraid to bite the hand that feeds them. What if that drip feeding all of a sudden dries up? Do they have the ability to actually sustain themselves? And so it's that gambit. It's that whole question. Is it better to be fed and live in captivity or is it better to be free and potentially die of starvation? It's a really tricky thing. It's a very political thing. Let's uh, now look at some scriptures before we actually get into the feeding of the 5,000. And throughout scripture, you can see, if you're looking at scripture through the lens of food economy and food supply, you can see it comes through scripture again and again and again when you're actually looking for it. And so I just have one quote here from Romans. And Paul says in chapter 12, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. How different is that? compared to what we are seeing in the world around us today. When we're saying, sure, I'll feed my family, I'll feed my friends, I'll even feed my allies, but my enemies? No way, I'm not going to do that. This is a very different mindset to what we see happening in the world around us today. But God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is one built out of abundance. It's one built out of plentifulness. It's one built out of generosity and excess and overflow. And this is very much what I was talking about last month when we were talking about God's generosity. This is the world that God created for us. And like I said, the, the world can't sustain its people, but it's the greed and the corruptness of people that is preventing everyone from getting a fair share. If we go to the very start of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, it starts in a place of abundance. Uh, Genesis 1.29 says, Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And so the beginning of the world, the, this, this metaphor of the Garden of Eden, it's saying that we started in the lap of abundance where there was enough, there was more than enough to go around. And even when we get to the time of Noah, um, we remember that, we, we all remember from Sunday school, Noah took two of every animal onto the ark, but we sometimes forget that the animals that uh, you could eat or the animals used for sacrifice, he was commanded to take more of those onto the ark and also every type of food onto the ark as well. And so if we read in uh, Genesis 6.21, it says, you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And so even though the world is being flooded, God's abundance is there for his people in the ark, in that little pocket of abundance floating on the oceans. And then once the waters recede, God then says in Genesis 9.3, everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants, I now give you everything. And so again, God's abundance is there. This is the world he created. There should be enough to go around. But humans, but the powers that rise up, again, that greed stops it from flowing to all corners of the earth. We see this in, uh, in Exodus as the Israelites have left Egypt and are now in the wilderness and they are complaining because the Egyptians also use food as a way to, com to control the Israel population. They were saying um, that there was many more Israelites than Egyptians. And so the Egyptian, sorry, the Israelites could have just run off if they wanted to. They wouldn't be able to stop them because there was so vast in number. But one of the reasons they didn't is because the Egyptians at least kept them fed. 
And so when they're in the wilderness, sure, they could run off to the desert, but then what? And so in Exodus 16.3, this is the Israelites complaining to uh, Moses. It says, the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. We sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve an entire assembly to death. And so again, is it better to live in captivity and be fed or be free and starve? It's that, it's that gambit that is there and it's a way that people can be controlled. A final verse I just want to share with you is from Isaiah. And again, this shows God's idea for the world, God's plan for the world. This is how he made it to be created. And I actually share this in, if you, you might have read this in House Church um, a couple of weeks ago because I thought this was so fitting in our talk about generosity. This is also really fitting here. And so Isaiah 55, 1-2, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and why labour on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the riches of fare. This is God's dream for the world. And so then we come to the time of Jesus and Jesus enters into this world 2,000 years ago. And it's like this clash of kingdoms coming together. It's the kingdom of God, which is generous and abundant and plentiful, crashing up against the kingdom of man, which is greedy and which is corrupt. It's, and Jesus came into a world where he would see you know, the rich people, those that have a lot of wealth, those that have a lot of food, and especially some of the Jews who would look their noses down at the poorer people and say, I, on this Sabbath, am going to be fasting because I am so holy. But you, poor person, you are not fasting, so how much holier am I than you? But they couldn't see the irony and the injustice that these poor people are probably fasting multiple times a week simply because they cannot afford to eat. But it is the rich people that hold the power and hold themselves up high in prestige and honour, and they fail to see how corrupt that was. We had the rabbis that would scold Jesus for eating with the outcasts of society. And they would say that these people are not worthy of Jesus' love, of his attention, of his time. The rabbis would push back against the disciples as they walked through the wheat fields with Jesus. And it's a Sabbath, and they would pick the grain, the heads of wheat, and they would thresh the wheat heads in their hands and they'll pick out the kernels and eat them and the rabbis would scold them saying you cannot work on the sabbath how dare you and that's where we famously get jesus pushing back against the rabbi saying that man was not made to serve the sabbath but the sabbath was made to serve the man but it's not just the Pharisees that are pushing back. It's also the Romans. The Romans were occupying, the Jews were under Roman occupation at the time. And while the Romans didn't directly interrupt the food supply to the Jews, they taxed them very heavily. And so the little money that the average Jew would have left over at the end of the pay week, they would be almost forced to spend on food. They wouldn't be able to afford to you know, secretly build weapons undercover they wouldn't be able to rally together they're just trying to survive rather than actually thrive and so jesus comes in to this world in this place of conflict it's like he was like a wave crashing over a break wall and i'm sure he wasn't surprised at the pushback that he got 
And so in this pot, this tension of boiling conflict, Jesus comes into the world between the haves, the haves not, those have power, lording it over those that have no power. And he sees this inequality and this, in this tension. And there in this tense time, he does this miracle and he feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a few fish. And no doubt the Pharisees were watching him very closely as he was doing this. When the disciples came to him and said the people are hungry, they were going, what's he going to do? What is Jesus going to do? Is he going to either send the people away? In that case, they could accuse him of not caring for his followers. Or is he going to feed them, which is a very costly exercise. We find out it's about half a year's wage, about 200 denarii. Is he going to feed the people? And in that case, he could be accused of rallying people together, some kind of power, some kind of uprising against Rome. But in that moment, a few things happened. The disciples come to Jesus and, and firstly, they report that the crowd is hungry. And it's interesting Jesus' response, isn't it? He, it's almost abrupt. It's almost dismissive. He says, you feed them. It's like, it's not my problem. You feed them. I don't care if they're hungry. But what we, we might fail to, to see there is that the disciples at that point had just come back from a mission trip that Jesus had sent them out to. And if you look at the words Jesus used when he sent them out to the mission field, he told them all to go out into the field, out to the country, without any money and without any food. In other words, to rely solely on God for provision. And so maybe when the, the disciples were coming to Jesus, maybe it was almost like a test. There are 5,000 hungry people here. What are you going to do? What have you learned on the mission field? But disappointingly, the disciples decide, or the, the conclusions the disciples come to is to either solve the problem with either food or with money. The two things Jesus said, trust God for, rather than try to work it out yourself. And so perhaps there was a bit of an eye roll there from Jesus. And so then he takes matters into his own hands and he takes the bread and he takes the fish. And so the disciples and the Pharisees are watching Jesus. What, which one of these two solutions is he going to go with? Is he going to send people away or is he going to feed them? That's the nature of politics, isn't it? It gives us two solutions. Politics love to create a dichotomy, a whole us and them situation. And if you're part of us, we're the good guys. If you're part of them, they're they're the bad guys. And we're right, you're wrong. We're good, you're bad. It simplifies everything. And we can get so locked into this two-way way of seeing the world. Everything is either black or white, good or bad. But Jesus shows us that there is another way. The politics of dichotomy. We're either voting liberal or labor. We're voting yes or no. We're part of the, we're for Rome. We're for the Jews. Jesus is going to send people away or he's going to feed them. It simplifies everything. But Jesus didn't choose any option before him. He chose another way. He chose God's way, one that neither bowed to the political or the economic pressures that he was under at the time. And in doing so, in that moment, he disarmed the political and religious power the Pharisees would hold over the Jewish population. And he would also disarm the power and the leverage the Romans would have over the food supply. Yet all were satisfied and he chose neither one 
of those options. And in that act, Jesus showed that he's not a slave to the pressures, but he offers a better way. And we don't know what Jesus taught the crowd that day. We don't have a full manuscript of what he, what he spoke on, but I'm sure one of the most memorable lessons for everyone there was when he fed them with just a handful of food. And it wasn't a lesson that he taught with his words, but he demonstrated with his actions. And he didn't take away Roman oppression. The Roman oppression lasted many years after Jesus. But he did show how the spirit can be free, even while it is under oppression. This in itself is a very political statement, but one that appeals to neither side. But again, it's another way. It's a better way. And it's God's way as well. And so... As we, as just as I finish up, I just want to show you a picture from uh, the artist Scott Erickson. We've got some of his pictures around the church, and this is a great one actually in relation to this story, which I think was great. And it shows the fish and the loaves broken, and inside is a symbol of the Trinity. And I know art is subjective, and we can pull all sorts of interesting things out of this as well. But me looking at this and just thinking about it, I think this really, to me, it shows the provision of God. It shows how Christ broke the bread and he broke the fish and from that humble gesture he cast his eyes to heaven and found another way and the multitudes were fed and satisfied and i think taking that analogy it's almost like breaking that dichotomy of politics again politics wants us to choose one side or another but if we break that and cast our eyes to god instead he can show us another way a better way something else to hold on to And so just to sum up, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, it is a very political one. But Jesus does not side with any one political point of view. Rather, through his miracle of feeding the crowd, he shows us that there is another way. And this act of godly provision shows us that Rome's power to control the Jewish population has no bearing on the kingdom of God. And it showed that the Pharisees that the law is made to serve people, not people are made to serve the law. Jesus showed us that faith in God allows us to rise above the dichotomy that is so often presented to us and invites us to step into another way, a better way. And by not stepping into the trap of choosing one side or another, we avoid the perspective of us and them, right and wrong, good and bad. But instead, it becomes us. In the kingdom of God, there is no us and them. There is only us and i think only from that standpoint can we only then begin to see the world through god's eyes and so when we are presented with that impossible choice that political choice that seeming to push us one way or another it's my hope and prayer for all of us that we are able to break that dichotomy cast our eyes to god and find another way a better way and have the wisdom and courage to step into God's invitation. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. <laughs>